Sweet time of worship tonight. If you turn in your Bibles, you don't really need to turn in your Bibles, and I hate to say that. We probably shouldn't say that from the pulpit, but Romans 8, 28, a single verse tonight. Perhaps uh, it is certainly one of Christendom's favorites. Uh, it's one of my personal favorites Maybe one of the most, if not the most glorious promise in all of Scripture, uh, apart from those which guarantee our salvation. Uh, here are these incredible words that the Apostle Paul writes in light of what he's already begun chapter 8 with, which is that incredible promise after chapter 7 where he reminds us, look, we still have a sin nature. We still have capacity to sin. We still actually do sin. For those things which I will to do, those things I do not do, and those things which I will not to do, uh, those things I do. He reminds us that, look, we are sinners that are saved by grace, and then to be, hallelujah, amen? And then at the beginning of this chapter, what does he say? There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You, you see, he reminds us of because of the cross of Christ, we've been placed outside of that judicial punishment. It cannot come to you because of the blood of Christ that's cleansed you from all unrighteousness. If you are a real believer, you are also really outside of the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. And then because of that, because of the trust that we have that God, in fact, from times past has seen us as the beloved, chosen of God before the foundation of the world. He's placed us in Christ Jesus by grace. Because of that, we get to verse 28, and it begins with three simple words, and we know. Now, why do we know it? We'll dig into that tonight. What is it that we know? We'll dig into that tonight. Why is it we know these things? We'll dig into that tonight. And we know that all things, say it with me, all things. How many things are all things? They're all things, amen? Is there anything outside of all things? No, all things means all things. We must not limit this verse to just the things that you can think of, the things you might like, the things you don't like. It means all things. And this we know, that all things work together. Say it with me, work together. Does that say that all things are good? It does not. It says, says that all things work together, and then it's very specific, for good. In other words, the synergism of all things being put together in the hands of a sovereign God who loves his children in a synergistic way. In other words, he puts those pieces together as only he can that all things work together for the good. 
to those. And now a very specific to those. I don't want to be the bearer of bad tidings on a great night. But there's only one group of people to whom this promise exists. To those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. It is not to everyone that this promise extends. God is providentially good to everyone. But the promise of him working all things together to the good, for the good, only goes to those who are his. And so this is the most glorious of all promises because that means that absolutely everything that will ever touch you filtered through the hands of a majestic Savior will ultimately work together for the good for you who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, for this promise, what can we say? Lord, our words aren't sufficient, and so we ask that you would take this incredible truth implanted in our hearts that we would not misunderstand it, God. It surely does not say that all things are good, because they're not. There's real evil in our world. We really engage in sin. There is a real enemy, and he is evil. There are demons, and they are evil. They're not good. There are evil countries. (laughs) There are evil people. There is an evil enemy. And those things are not good. But Lord, even those things to us who love you, your beautiful capacity to put them together makes them work together for the good of those who love you. And we pray that tonight you would speak this truth in a way that we have not ever heard before to us as your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so it begins with the three words, and we know. Now please put this in your head. It's not we think. It's not maybe. It's not possibly. It's not as you would believe if you believed in Allah, if God has a good day because he can be capricious in Islam. He may just simply not choose to like you today. Maybe you did something to displease him, even as a follower. Yahweh, Lord of hosts, the great I am, God incarnate in human flesh, Jesus, God's own son, does not have bad days. Nor does he get up in the morning, figuratively speaking, and change his mind about his plans for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11 is clear. I know my thoughts towards you, says the Lord. They are a future and they are a hope. Plans to prosper you, not to do you harm. To God's people, all the time, we can say, and we know. Because God has given us a window into his character. It's called his word. 
into who he is, what he does, how he functions, and the way he loves us. And so we know these things. The context here in these three simple words is really the inerrant truth of the entire Bible. Why do we know? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He wouldn't have given his son to jerk back your security in Christ. He wouldn't have made it an if proposition. We have certainty because of who Jesus is. And so we need to remember that certainty. We know these things. Not because I say so. Because God's word says so. And the same Bible that declares this truth declares that you are saved by grace and through faith. And that's not of you. It isn't of your works. You can't boast about it. It is a gift of God. And so the same truths that present grace to us, salvation to us that comes by believing in Christ Jesus, present to us, and this we know. The same Bible that declares that there is a creator God in heaven who made everything declares that he made you in his image. And he declares to you who have believed on his name, and this we know, that God. You see, this truth shows us the enormity of his hands in whom we rest. How big is it, are his hands? They're God's hands. He holds the universe in the span of it. I don't know if you've ever contemplated the moon and the stars being his handiwork. His little crafts that he does in the afternoon. To look at God as he sees us, as he sees the world, and to recognize how big he is. You have to put him in that sovereign position of absolute ruler of the universe who can be taught nothing, who knows everything. He lacks no power. He has all power. He is everywhere at once. He's not anywhere. that There is nowhere that he can't be. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's God. He's not a God of our making. He is who he has told he, us he is. And so that big God has huge hands. And so where we cannot understand how he balances out the daily wranglings of nearly 7 billion people on this planet and every silly thing that we can come up with 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, how he keeps every sparrow in the sky, how he tends to the needs of all those hundreds of trillions of fish in the ocean, How he does what he does, we may not understand at an intellectual level. But he's been doing it since he built the universe from nothing. And so he is a huge God with infinite capacity. And so in light of that, in light of his sovereign power is the way to look at it. In light of his sovereign power, there exactly are two causes For all things. And there are only two. If you're here tonight and you believe that God is creator. 
and he is one of one. He exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Then that one God in three persons must therefore be either the direct cause of everything or has directly allowed absolutely everything. Otherwise, he is not sovereign. He's less than sovereign. If something slipped by, go, I didn't see that. I had no idea Jeff would go through that today. I I never knew such evil people existed. I can't, this guy Hitler, how did he get on the planet? You see, in our humanness, we would think, well, if God were really God, then he would have surely just simply eliminated somebody like that. The reason I say these things to you is as a believer in God's grace, you must also believe that God is fully sovereign. And if you believe he is fully sovereign, you cannot have any other beliefs than these. He has either purposefully and willfully caused it to be, or he has purposefully and willfully allowed it to be, even though it is evil. And we'll get to the nuts and bolts of this in a few minutes. His hands are big enough for all things. Whether he himself has purposed and willed them, or whether our real enemy, Satan, has taken something which God has made and and he abuses it. And does evil with it. And we'll look at many examples tonight. You see, as we think on these things, then there is nothing existing anywhere on heaven or earth that is outside of his hands. That is exactly why he's going to go on to say in verse 39, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because everything is his. They're all, everything is in his hands. And if his purpose is for us to love him, which it is, amen? Why? Because he told us so. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we know his desire for everyone is to be saved. So there can't be anything that's created that can separate someone who has loved God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is nothing that can separate you from that love. You see, no matter what your situation, your suffering, your persecution, your sinful failure, your pain, your lack of faith, no matter what it is, it's not too big for God. He's got it. The question only becomes, how will we let him use it? Will we allow ourselves to see what he's doing with all things? In that sense, there is a holy synergism. Because it says here very clearly that all things are working together for good. And that nothing ultimately can work against us would be the the converse of that. These words working together are actually a single Greek word. And it is just simply a word synergio. We get our English word synergy from it. 
And if you understand synergy, synergy means that you take things that may not necessarily be components that are like one another, and you put them together, and in that way, the parts form something that's greater than the individual pieces. Or that when they're put together, the sum and total of how they will be used will produce something that is unlike either of the individual parts. In other words, God uses things no matter what they are, even though those effects of those things might be completely different one from another, they may actually be something that could hurt you or harm you. And an example of that, and probably most of you, when you go home, you probably have a salt shaker. Uh, if you're a meat eater, you surely have a salt shaker. Because we love that NaCl, the chemical designation, uh, that sodium chloride that's table salt. Amen? But there are two ingredients in there that should you take them individually, sodium and chlorine, that will definitely end your life very quickly. But when they're put together, and in a synergistic way, they now have molecularly been bonded, they form sodium chloride, which is really wonderful stuff. You use it to season meat. Uh, If you've ever had an IV inside of that IV, generally the mixing solution is saline, sodium chloride, and clear water. It's used in firefighting. It's used for cleansers. It's used to preserve food. It's used as a water softener. It's used for all kinds of things. But you take it back apart. You put chlorine, especially too much of it, inside of your drinking water, you're going to be very sick and or dead. In that way, God takes all things and he blends them together so that the produce of what he's done with them becomes good. Each element separately might possibly kill you. Let me show you a couple of things in the Old Testament. You see, most of you are very familiar uh, with the wanderings of the children of Israel. Amen? Is there anything in their wilderness wanderings that you look at and you go, man, I wish I was there for that? (laughs) They wandered. Deuteronomy 8 says, God led you through the great and terrible wilderness. I mean, God calls it a terrible wilderness. With its fiery serpents and scorpions. There's a holiday for you. (laughs) Honey, I booked us an excursion into the terrible wilderness with fiery serpents and scorpions. And oh, by the way, there's thirsty ground there where there is no water. Oh boy, can we stay a month? And it was there that he brought water out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you. And verse 16 of Deuteronomy 8 gives us this very principle in the Old Testament. To do good to you in your end. In other words, the reason that God actually allowed, do you see it? While he didn't really want them to wander in the wilderness, in their disobedience, they chose the wilderness. They said, look, we're going to choose the wilderness. 
We don't want to listen to what you have to say. So here's an example of God using something very bad for something very good, ultimately. Because we know those 40 years ultimately ended up with Joshua and Caleb standing on the border at Kadesh Barnea, looking into the promised land and say, let's go kill us some giants and take the land. You see, it took a long time, but God worked it together to the good of those who love him. Paul actually said that, look, day by day the outer man is decaying, but our inner man is being renewed. There in 2 Corinthians 4. And this light affliction pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. You see, he's working that affliction together for good to produce glory in us. How many of us have learned that lesson? And so the question pops into our mind. If if God can take this horrible vacation spot called the terrible wilderness filled with fiery serpents and scorpions and do good to the Jewish people, if God can take the Apostle Paul's life, and as we are going to see on Sunday night, he begins his journey to Rome. A journey of 2,141 miles. And he's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to get tossed overboard. He's going to have all these hideous things. It's bad enough that he's going to plead his case before Caesar Augustus. But God is actually going to do good with the Apostle Paul's life as he sends him to his death. That's God working things together for the good. That's how God does things. You and I wouldn't pick that path. We're going to get a cruise liner, and we're sailing across the Aegean Sea, and we're going to go to Rome. We're going to take a nice little tour. We're going to send a whole entourage. We're going to speak the truth to Caesar Augustus. Then we're leaving. But God chose to use the death of the great Apostle Paul in Rome ultimately to save all of us because we, in effect, are the fruits of the ministry of the apostles still to this day. So you might be asking yourself, I ask myself, so what, Jeff, what do you mean by good? Let's look at some things. First of all, God causes righteous things to work together for our good. That's fairly obvious, amen? When you're obedient to God's word, what happens to you? He blesses you. So he obviously uses righteous things. Some people, some, you know, we often even think that sometimes the, the righteousness of God really doesn't even work out to our good. You know, it's just hard. No, he's working good into your life. God's power supports us by causing good. You see, here's a direct causality in your life. We talk about all things. The law of causality says that nothing can be created that is greater than its cause. Well, nothing's greater than the cause of everything because the cause is God. And so everything that is in your life, done in your life, is supported by the power of God because he's created everything. So in other words, if there's anything in your life that's been caused, 
whether by direct action or allowance, it came from the hands of God. And so it's actually his power supporting your life. God's wisdom provides for our good. Man, how often I have, I have sat and, and been counseling with people, and apart from God's word and his wisdom in it, I would have nothing to say. And the good that is spoken, sometimes that good hurts. But the wisdom of God is so good that even when it hurts, it's still good. That's why we can speak the truth in love. You see, as you speak forth those things, the wisdom of God provides for people to understand things properly, and it becomes good to them. If you're a believer, you can trust in the wisdom of God. You're, you're never going to have a moment in all of your existence where you wake up and say, man, God really blew it on that one. You know, I, I thought that I had this whole marriage and I did what the Bible said about marriage and man, we're so messed up. That's not going to happen to you. You will get messed up if you don't do what God's word says. But the wisdom of God will always be perfect. He is just and he is right. Almost by definition, God's goodness. We, we sometimes miss this one too. God's goodness by its own definition works together for our good. Because it's part of his character and nature, he's always looking to do good for you. So there goes that whole thought process that many of us have struggled with for years. That God not only is not good, he's actually waiting for that time when I mess up. So he can send me where I really belong. No, his goodness works to your good. It is his loving kindness that has drawn men to repentance. Think on that one for a second. It wasn't God trying to force you to be good. He's already good, and he puts his goodness on you so you're attracted to who he is. God's goodness draws us to him. How about God's faithfulness working together for our good? Any of you ever experienced your own unfaithfulness in the face of God's faithfulness and said, man, God is good? Amen? Because I've watched God be faithful when I've been unfaithful. And he's good. I can tell you he's good. He's faithful. And his faithfulness to me is good. And it's for our good. Even his faithfulness to correct us. Amen? He chastens those whom he loves. Amen? So even that part of his character, his faithfulness works for our good. Psalm 91 declares this to us. He will call upon me and I will answer him. And I will be with him in trouble and rescue him and honor him. You you see, the promises of God are good. So when I get in those situations, I know where I need to go. He's faithful. God's not doing what we do. Because you know, when people don't contact you and all of a sudden they contact you out of the blue, it's like, well, where were you last week is the way we think. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? He's at the beck and call of his children 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's not going to miss your call. You text God, he's going to text back, okay? (laughs) 
How about God's Word? God's Word is good. The book of Revelation says it's sweet and it's bitter at the same time. And that's very true. Because there are times when God's Word, though it's always good, man, it gets right in there where you don't want it to go sometimes. Amen? Anybody ever had a fault pointed out by God's Word? You went, ooh, that hurt. But then you realize that where you were going was the wrong direction. You go, but that was a good hurt. Now, you may not see it right away, but you're going to look back on it and say, man, God was good. His word is good. Not only are his attributes, which are chiefly these things we've already looked at, but even those whom he sends to minister to us, his angels are good. Are, are, are not they all ministering spirits for our good to render service to us. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. God actually sends angels to minister to us. He doesn't have to do that, by the way, but he is so good and he works all things together for the good that those angels that are watching over you, those angels that have been assigned to you, especially every male child before they they reach about 40. (laughs) You know what I'm saying. We've got extra angels because we think we're invincible. And God's so good, he's like, oh, there goes Jeff again. More angels, please. They're good. And they work together for the good. I've watched the hand of God. I've had breakdowns in vehicles so I couldn't go places that I was going to go. It's crazy. You can just see the angels underneath the hood pulling out the spark plug wires. He doesn't need to go there. We ourselves are supposed to be ministers of good for each other. Everything God does. You know, there's no place in here that says we're supposed to be mean to each other. Even when we correct each other, we're supposed to be kind and gentle, respectful. We're supposed to be good. Why? Because it's an extension of his hands. He's good. So we're supposed to be good to each other. Now we get into some tough things. Things that are hard for us to understand. The truth of it is, even evil things God uses for good. They're, they're unpleasant at times, amen? How many of us have learned compassion through pain? How many of us have learned patience through anger? How many of us have learned learned forgiveness through bitterness? How many of us have learned to say thank you because we have been with want? You see what I'm saying? You see what God does with things? If we choose to see it his way, he can even use things that are evil to minister his good to us. In, In his wisdom, his omnipotence, even the worst things that we could possibly conjure up, God eventually works together for the good for his kids. Now in saying that, I did not say, nor did I intend, that all things are good. They're not. There are bad things in this world. People that molest children are not good. They're evil. They're evil. 
But God works things together for his children for the good. Somehow, when we get the other side of heaven, after we're finished with this life, we'll look back on that. We may not even know how God uses that in this world. But we'll see then exactly what he did. And I want to give you three categories, really, of evil things that God uses. First evil thing is he uses suffering. Suffering's evil, family of God. God doesn't intend for us to suffer, so that's not caused by him. That's caused by the wicked one, but he has to allow it. Case in point is Job's life. Amen? Eventually, Job is like, you know, God, what's going on here? You were bragging about me, now you let this happen? Suffering is awful, and it's not good. But God somehow works it together for good, and Job's life is testimony of that. At the end, how many times did he have all of his things returned to him? It was tenfold. So God took that brokenness, took that that family that was destroyed in a tornado, took the boils that were on his body, and did something with Job that ultimately Job could say, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. And he wasn't just trying to be all spiritual. He meant it. That's exactly why James could say, count it all joy. They're in James 1. Count it all joy, brethren. Put it in the joy column. You may not know how it's going to work out, joy, but God's good, so you put it in the joy column. Because God's good. And you start expressing praise, even in the midst of your darkest moment, in the valley of the shadow of death, God is still good. Even in suffering, he's good to his people. You ever want a picture of that? Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You sit there and you you listen to the story of a a man like Wycliffe. You know, these, these... These men who said, I I will not deny the Lord. And here they are at the Smithfield trials, and they're they're one by one brought out, and they're put on a gigantic pyre, and that pyre is doused with oil. And and all they got to do is say, just deny Jesus. That's all we're asking you to do. I cannot, I will not, and you can set this thing on fire. Can you imagine watching somebody singing praise songs Can you imagine how many people gave their lives to Christ watching someone burned alive by evil people in an evil event? Can you imagine how many people came to faith in Christ through witnessing that? I I don't know what's different about him, but whatever's different about him, I want that. Can you imagine the crowns when stepped out of time and into eternity? God's good to see you. Your suffering, your travail is over. But oh, what good. A classic example in the Old Testament is Joseph, amen? Joseph's life. You talk about, man, my life's a wreck. He could have his own TV show. You got a crazy father. You got nuts brothers. I mean, you could almost see it. It was made into an opera, amen? Joseph in the multicolored dream coat. I mean, it's, it's, it, you, can, you can imagine. 
And God actually says about it, that which was intended for evil, God, you use for good. To deliver these today alive. You sold me into slavery, but God intended to do good with it. Paul was afflicted with pain. Look, evil in the hands of God can be used for good. Don't forget that. It helps you in those moments where you don't understand why God would ever allow anything. If you resort to the fact that God is good, then you can at least put it into his hands and say, Lord, I hate this thing because you hate it, but I know you're going to do something good with it. I don't know how. And I probably wouldn't have done it this way. But because I trust that you're sovereign, and you're either directly causing this or you're allowing it, one of those two things is going on here, God. So this evil you're allowing, I am going to leave in your hands and know that you are just. Suffering helps us identify with the Lord Jesus. And so we, we, we can see these things that God uses for good. God uses the evil of temptation for good. Just as suffering is not good in and of itself, neither is temptation. Temptation's from the enemy. But God can use that to strengthen you. How many of you, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand, maybe you had a problem with sin in some area of your life, and God is actually using temptation to strengthen your resolve to stand. That thing comes, and you now have victory where you used to have defeat. God is actually using it as a way to strengthen you. David actually said there in the 119th Psalm, he says, Thy word, O Lord, have I treasured, have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. So as God allows things to come into our life, and the word comes back to us, so that we can fight the same way Jesus fought, said, Thus says the Lord, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the the Lord, out of the mouth of God. You see, when you do that, that temptation, though it came from the enemy, is a place where you begin to grow. And good comes to you from it. It can devastate, I'll, I'll tell you, nothing will devastate your pride like temptation. Because you know what you have to do? you got to run back to Jesus every time. And what you thought was strength to you, you're now on your knees begging God. Saying, Lord, don't let this overtake me. That's God using evil, temptation, to make you dependent upon his sovereign hands. God even uses the evil of sin as a means to bring good to his children. And and as hard as this is to wrap our heads around, if if you think on it, it's it's mind-boggling. But when you think of sin in your life, it's the antithesis of good, right? But what if you didn't have that sin there Would you really appreciate God for who He is? 
And so God uses in a reflective way your old nature, the way you used to be, and He uses that sin to actually instill in you the need for goodness. That's why the law was a tutor and a schoolmaster unto Christ. It points out our weaknesses and our our lack of strength, our, our abject failure. And then God works for our good by actually overruling your old nature. Because you've been endued with the Holy Spirit, now the Holy Spirit's in you. And so when those things come, the sin comes and it's still there. Those same temptations are right there before you. But you actually not only don't give in to those temptations, but God delivers you from evil, from the sin. All of a sudden, you're a little more bold. God does something in your life. It's like, you know, I am no longer bound by that. God even uses sin as a backdrop. He cancels out the, the normal evil consequences very often and, and substitutes his benefits. He says, look, you could have gone this way, but I'm going to save you from it. It's a foundational truth of how much his, his grace has changed us. Amen? As God's grace changes us, man, we see everything in a different light. I look at my whole life differently. doesn't mean things still don't hurt. But it means that bigger than all my hurt is the hands of God. It means that as I trust Him and I rest in Him, I, I'm not looking back and saying, wow, I sure regret that. Can I tell you, I haven't regretted a thing about my relationship with the Lord. I've regretted my response to His grace, but never His character, His goodness. His way of handling things. What he said about how my life should look according to his word. And so all things includes all these things. You, you see, when you think on these things, who is it that's safe in the hands of the Lord? Because if you listen to all that, you know, you would want to be in that group, amen? Amen. Who, who is it that those people actually represent? Because it's all things, but it's only to a very specific group of people. To those who love God, to those who are called. That's only believers. You see, evil to somebody without Christ is still evil. Sin to somebody without Christ is still sin and unfortunately, the wages of sin is death. But on the flip side, the free gift of God is salvation. Amen? So he's saying, look, here, here's, here's your polar opposites. You can keep what you already have, which is a sin nature and the penalty for keeping it. Or you can have what I'm offering, which is my grace. And if you accept my grace, then I will work all things together for your good. But if you don't receive my grace, then you have to work out the consequences of all your actions and everything that ever occurs to you as best you possibly can. No doubt which club most of us would rather be in, and most of us are tonight. You see, it's those who love God. It's redeemed people. It's those who've received the grace of God. We don't know the fullness of these things. We just know in part 
that we're on the right side. And praise God, he, he deals with us from moment one at salvation to the final moment before we're sanctified and glorified. God deals with our weaknesses. Amen? By grace. He's not asking you to, for perfection at day one. He's saying, would you please start going the right direction at day one? Amen? Not perfection, right direction. You, you want to be heading towards Jesus. That's what he asks. He asks you to reject The old ways, he says, repent, turn away, confess your sin, and I'm going to be faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you. And then I want you to start going the other way. You see, that's a mark that you actually know God. If that hasn't happened to you, then you need to ask yourself the question, do I really have a Savior? That's one of those self-checkups. Any of you ever go into like CVS and there's the blood pressure machine in there? Don't do it after you've had bacon. But you go in, you sit down, and it's free, right? You sit down, you put your arm in there, and it's like... And your fingers start to blow up, and they're going to explode. Then all of a sudden, lights start flashing, and people come running towards you, and an ambulance pulls up at the door. It's connected directly because your blood pressure's off the chart. You see, that's a self-checkup. Yeah, that's a diagnostic piece of equipment. Your Bible is a self-checkup, a diagnostic piece of equipment. It's designed to let you know where you're standing with the Lord and that you're going the right direction. And if you can't find some places in there that you're going the right direction, then you need to do some diagnostics and go, what's going on here? Because I thought I had a new nature. I've become new in Christ, and behold, all things are becoming new. So I'm, I'm not doing any new things the way the Bible says I should. So the diagnosis is maybe you need to just simply invite Jesus into your life again. Maybe you did that. Maybe you missed something. You see, grace is free, but it's not cheap. And it's not grace that allows us to keep on sinning. It's grace that changes us. Albeit slowly at times, it changes us. And it's marked, you know. That's why it begins, and you know. Because you know when you're one of God's kids. You know why? Because you have the conviction of sin and righteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's the chief work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It says, this is sin, and this is righteousness. And the Holy Spirit's going, you know the difference, Jeff. So while you're doing this... When you're getting those little, you know, twinges in your ear that say, yeah, I'm not supposed to be doing that. That's a sure sign that the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. You don't have that? Self-diagnosis. You need to find out what's wrong. You see, what ultimately happens is you genuinely love God. And so that has some characteristics If you, if you genuinely love God, then you're, you're going to have these things. You're, you're going to have this incredible personal communication with the Lord. You're going to long for God. And there are days when I'm just like, Lord. You ever do that? You just kind of wake up and it's like, Lord. It's kind of like a cry of your soul. It's like, I'm sure glad I know you because this world is a mess. 
You want to have that personal, you want to talk to him. It's like, God, I need to know. It's also going to be characterized by peace. God gives us perfect peace, amen? Those who love thy law have great peace. Nothing causes them to stumble. 119 Psalm reminds us of that. Look, it's divine, it's secured. Our minds are at perfect peace who are stayed on him. Jesus is the prince of peace. So you're one of God's kids. You have a measure of peace even in the midst of a storm. We're going to see that on Sunday night. We're finishing up the book of Acts. This incredible picture of the Apostle Paul. There's a guy you you would think, you know, the Lord, give him a break while he's on his way to his death. But no, God's got more work to do in his life. But he does have peace in the midst of that storm. People who love God love the things that God loves. Amen? We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to actually have an affinity for the things of God if we really love him. Oh, man, you know, I just hate righteousness. I'm so bummed about this grace thing. You know, I wish, God, you weren't so gracious to those people over there. That's not a good thing. If you're a believer and you don't love forgiveness, if you're a believer and you love bitterness, You see, we're supposed to love the things that God loves and we're supposed to hate the things that he hates. If we do that, then ultimately that's a mark that we're his. If it's the other way around, it's another piece of diagnostic equipment. Genuine love for God. You actually love God's people. Jesus actually told us that, right? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Notice he didn't say if you have doctrinal correctness. Or if you all agree on minor points of doctrine. You know, you, you know rapture, mid-trib, post-trib, no-trib, amillennialist. This is what it says. It says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Matter of fact, Jesus put it even more succinctly. He said, I wish that you were like I and my father. John actually told us in God is love. So love's that chief characteristic. A genuine love for God also hates what God hates. He can't tolerate evil. You remember Peter when he had denied the Lord? Do you remember what he did? He was grieved. He began to weep bitterly over his sin. You know, when you love God, you weep bitterly over your sin. It actually bothers us. People who don't know the Lord don't weep bitterly over their sin. They're just glad they got away with it. They make excuses for it. It should agonize us. You put a knot in your gut. And in genuine love, we long for the, the rapture of the church, man. If you love God, you're looking forward to going home, amen? Because this world is a travail. It's why it's called such. And so when you think on these things, you'll have the obedience that you should have to God. Because that's the shortest path to the, to the end goal, which is to be like Christ, Amen? You're going to eventually be like Christ. Your Bible preaches that. 
very clearly. One day you're going to be as he is. So start working on it now. Amen? You see, that's how you know you're one of God's kids. So if you want to know how all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose, you have to do these things. You need to be obedient to God. That's how you have the greatest surety of these promises. I know things work out to my good. You know why? Because I love God. I hate sin. I'm looking forward to getting out of here. Rapture comes. I'm like, yes. You see, these things are markers for us in our lives to where we can actually say, you know, I know this is going to work out for my good. Someday, some way, somehow, because all these things are true in my life. They may be imperfectly true, but they're true. I don't perfectly hate sin because I like bacon on everything and I'm sure too much of it's not good. That salt that, you know, if you take the chlorine and, and, and pull it apart, you pull out that calcium carbonate and you do this to it, I, it's not good. <laughs> I pour that stuff rather liberally on things that you shouldn't eat after you do that to it. but there's safety in being called of God. And as we wrap this up tonight, I'm going to bring the worship team back out. When you think on this, this promise is your promise, family of God. This promise is your promise. As we march through all these things, and you realize the things that God can use, and you realize the thing that God does do with each of it, And you think through your own life, you you go, Lord, I trust you because I know I'm in your hands. I know you're sovereign. And I know you either caused this directly or you've allowed it to happen because there's no other explanation for anything unless I put you in that place. You see, ultimately, you can't even believe in a creator if you don't believe that those two things are true. You can't because then there's some other way that things could happen. And God's either sovereign or he's not sovereign. And so there's safety in it. And we know what God thinks about us. He has his own purposes. He knows knows us intimately well. And, And so the safety that you have even comes from the hands of God. The 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 work that's going on that will be used for your good is based in his love for us. It's based in his own goodness. And because the Lord wants all of us to be his kids, if you are his child, then you can just simply rest that God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. He's not going to mess up. He didn't mess up in making you. He's not messing up in keeping you. He's not messing up in how he runs the universe, the world. He hasn't messed up in allowing kings and kingdoms and presidents and governments he hasn't messed up he still works all things all things together for the good for us for those who love him are his children and you can trust him with that amen would you stand with me
going to have some of the pastors come forward and no doubt a group this size there are probably some of you who are going well I'm not sure God has this one under control and so I want to invite you to leave those things here tonight maybe you can't say for certain you're one of those whom have been called and you need to receive Jesus Christ as your savior tonight the pastors come forward they're available up here it, it's a it's a simple proposition and God made it intentionally so that you would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Who he is, what he's done, why he did it. God's own son died in your place. You can make that decision tonight. Maybe you've been haunted by your own insufficiency. And you don't know what to do with it. You put it in God's hands. You stuff it in this to-do box. And you say, Lord, I'm not taking this back. It belongs to you. And you let him keep it. Don't take that stuff back. Because he's got a plan. And it's good. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this truth. Lord, we don't know what we do without it. Lord, if I thought all evil was going to reign forever, I'm not sure I'd want to be here. If I thought everything that ever happened to me would somehow be able to just be overlooked, it sure wouldn't make me love you. But you don't overlook anything, and everything's filtered through your hands. Or brought into being by you. And so God we thank you for that truth. We pray that you'd bless us Lord. As we leave this place tonight. Would you strengthen us for what lies ahead. Would we never ever get to that place. Where we don't trust you. God keep us. Steadfast immovable. Always abounding. In that labor of love. Because we know that in you. It's not in vain. We bless your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.